Well, Don's right. It is a tough message. It's a tough passage, but we'll get to that in a second. And uh, for the next couple of minutes, let's just take a review of where we were last week. We took a bit of a break from Acts to look at suffering, which is another fun subject, I know. But, uh, but how God uses suffering in our lives to help us to grow in our faith with him. We learned that God uses suffering uh, as a building block to help us grow in our faith. We learned that God restores us after we have suffered for a while. And we also know that one day our suffering will end. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen until we get to heaven. But... We do know that as believers, there is an end to our suffering. That is our great hope. We also know that our suffering prepares us for those eternal things. And we also can take solace in the fact that God himself understands suffering. That he's not a meanie up there just picking on us. He understands what suffering is because he himself suffered. And so... Um, the message is posted on our website. If you missed it and you're going through something and maybe you would find that to be helpful, take uh, some time to listen to that. We went through that because, to be honest, the last few weeks in the valley has been a little tough. Um, we've had some unexpected things happening, and I just felt like it was time to deal with the subject as it is and just look at it uh, through Scripture so that we can understand how God uses suffering. And then if we go back to our last message in Acts chapter 4, we saw that Peter and John, they didn't back down. Remember in the message even before that, they healed the lame beggar. And everybody was amazed. And they didn't point at themselves, they pointed to Jesus. They said, don't look at us, we didn't heal him. Jesus is the one. He's the one. Well then, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews, they got a little nervous because they started talking about Jesus resurrected as the Messiah and pointing to him. And so they pulled him in and they questioned them and asked them. And Peter and John, no holds barred with boldness, spoke the truth about who Christ is to them. And then the Sanhedrin had nothing to say because standing next to them was this man who they had seen in the temple for 40-some years of his whole life, not able to walk, now healed. And they, there, there was like no disputing that. And so they said, well, we would really like you to not talk about Jesus anymore or something bad will happen to you. Making a little bit of light of that. But Peter and John went back to the believers. And instead of cowering in fear, what did they do? They went to the Lord and asked for boldness so that they could share the word of God even more boldly when they went out to the people. They didn't cower in fear. And so now today as we transition, we're looking at probably one of the toughest, if not the toughest message in the book of Acts. We're looking at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and we begin this wonderful story, actually, by talking about the early church again. Luke takes us back to the second chapter after Pentecost had come and kind of reiterates what was going on with the early church. 
And he is going to do kind of the, the same thing, and he's going to do this because of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He wants us to understand the goodness of the church and the way it was designed to be and how their story is in contradiction to how he wants us to live. Our passage is long because it, it does cover two separate stories that really need to be told together. We need to study them together to understand what it is that God is trying to say through Ananias and Sapphira. He wants us to see that even when everything looks perfect, underneath, sometimes there's cracks and flaws that we don't see. But we can be assured that he knows. He sees those things. And so instead of again reading, which we're gonna, you're going to see this a lot in the book of Acts because we're going to be looking at a lot of very long passages. We're not going to read the passage in its entirety at the beginning. We'll just look at it in chunks and talk about it as we go along. So let's pray and then we'll start looking at Acts starting in 4.32 and we'll continue to Acts 5.11. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just come before you, Lord, and we're so excited to come before you and, and to hear this message. And even though we know this message is difficult, and there's truths in here, Lord, that are hard to teach, things that we really don't want to hear, and yet we need to know them. We need to understand what it is that you say to us in totality, not just what tickles our ears, Lord, but the things that also really cause us to go, hmm. Lord, these things should draw us closer to you. And I pray, God, that through our study this morning of your word, that it would do just that, that you would give us by the power of your Holy Spirit your word as you wrote it to the people in the book of Acts, that we would, I would be able to speak this word, Lord, by the power of your spirit, and that our hearts would hear what you have to say and our minds would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we start out then, we're going to look at the beauty of the church in review. We're going to look at Acts 4:32 through 35. We'll start in verse 32, and it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now when we read this, and if you remember, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go back and read Acts chapter 2, but starting in verse 42 through 47, you can use that as homework. There might be more homework later, so if you're a note taker, write that down. Acts 42, 42 through 47, which is the first account from Luke regarding the church in its infancy. But we can see there's six things that he is going to point out that are very similar to Acts chapter 2. And the first one is, is they had everything in common. Everything they had in common. That's very simple. That's understandable. We get that. The second one is they were united in their belief. 
they were united in their, in their belief. Like in verse 32, it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were united. And then in 244, it says, all who believed were together. So the church was unified. And when the church is unified, it has great power. When the church is divided, it is weak. It is weak. God wants our church to be unified in power. It's important for us to be on the same page as far as the gospel and what our mission is. And of course, we know our mission is to reach our neighborhood in La Junta and the ends of the earth with the gospel of Christ to make disciples. And we should be excited about that because God is using us for this purpose. He doesn't have to use us, but he chooses to use us. We get to be participants with him. And that is an exciting thing, not a scary thing. It can take us out of our comfort zone, so it can be a little frightening. But in the end, when you got a holy God who says, I want to use you, do you want to join me? Yeah! I want to be a part of what you're doing. Why would I not? And the third thing is that the apostles are doing signs and wonders. Again, going along with what we were just talking about. God was doing great things through them. He was using the power of the Holy Spirit through men for healings and things. Next week, um, Dennis is going to speak, and he is going to talk about how they were bringing people out and even allowing them to be in Peter's shadow to be healed. There are just amazing things going on. And people were in awe. There was awe. And I think in our church today, that sometimes not necessarily just this church, but the church universal, we have lost awe. We have lost this sense of awe of God because sometimes we don't expect him to do much. And I, and I wonder, you know, even in my own heart, I, you know, you hear me talk to, to pray big prayers and to expect great things from our God because those are the things that he promises. He promises to use us and to answer our prayers. But I think even... Me, sometimes, I don't trust him enough to do more than, and, and I don't ask him to do the big things and expect him to do them. But I think for us as a church, we need to expect God to do great things, to ask him to fill us with awe. And really, he has. He sent his son to the cross for us. In that sense, the fact that he saved us and as we'll see here in a bit to what could have happened, yeah, that should bring us awe. No one was needy. That's the fourth thing. No one was needy. There was not a needy person among them. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and they were giving the proceeds to all who had need. Imagine, imagine a church where no one had need. Because we held everything with open hands, like we talk about um, at Calvary, that it's like trying to hold water. You can't with open fingers. You ever tried to grab water and hold on to it, or even sand? It just slips through your fingers. Nothing that we have here on earth, nothing that we have is ours. Everything belongs to him. 
And we need to understand that if he gives us great things, he might want us to use it and give it away in a great way. We shouldn't be selfish. We need to be generous. And that brings us to the fifth thing. They were generous with their possessions. They sold land and houses. I mean, how many of us wanted, would want to sell our house that we're comfortable living in and just give the proceeds to somebody who is in need? Any hands? I don't have mine up either. Chris, okay. All right. You might want to pay attention to the, what's going to happen here in a little while, all right? Because if you make a vow like that, I'm just saying, so we're going to see. But, but, but I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean, we would love to do that in kind if we would say that. But, you know, would we? And we have to understand that they were not under comp compulsion to do any of this. Everything that they did was voluntary. They were not under the law, but under grace. So when they did this, they did this out of the kindness of their heart. And the sixth and final thing was that they shared Jesus and the Lord blessed their testimony. We see this, you know, they had, they had people coming day by day, by day to the Lord. The Lord was adding to their number. Their boldness and their faithfulness and their unity, God was pleased with. And he blessed it. And more and more people came. And more and more people wanted to come because they saw that there was hope here. They saw that there was a solution to their problem of lostness. And it was Jesus. And there was love. And these people's lives were changed. And they could witness that as they were looking from the outside in. And they wanted to be a part of that. And as we talk about us, is that true of us in the church today? Now, we know the times are difficult here, and the church is not really held in high esteem by people outside of it, and maybe even some people on the inside of it. But I will say this, God's church will prevail. As we've talked about before, you can read all the articles you want about the demise of the church and how it's going away and Christianity is losing its influence, but I am telling you, God is at work. And he will not stop. And his church will prevail. And we can either be on board or we don't have to be on board. But I think we would rather be on board, to be honest. So Luke wanted us to see the unity of the body and what was going on. That there was a shared faith in Christ. That the Lord was building his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also this sets us up for the next part of the story, which we're going to get to. And, and there's a right way to be uh, generous. We'll see this. We see this in our next section, which is starting in verse 36 and ver verse 37. It says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And, you know, I'm jealous because my name is Scott. My name doesn't really mean anything. My name means a man from Scotland, or I've read in one place where it said a tattooed man, which is completely wrong because I don't have a tattoo on my entire body. So it doesn't mean anything at all. My name doesn't mean anything, you know? But this man, if you're going to give somebody a name, would you not want to be called the son of encouragement Instead of the pinch-faced old man, you know, that's just angry. I mean, this is the son of encouragement. Anyway, 
just that was just a side note. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, we have to keep in mind Barnabas was not under any obligation to sell anything, nor was he under any obligation to give all of it to the apostles. And yet out of the generousness of his heart, the goodness that God had given him through the power of the Holy Spirit, he saw a need and he sold it and he laid it at the apostles' feet, all of it. You know, when we talk about giving and we talk about money, which we don't talk a lot about here, we talk about tithing. And we go back to the Old Testament time and we start talking about giving 10% of our gross or net income and we argue about that and then we come to the New Testament and if we really wanted to follow the New Testament model this is the New Testament model so if you think 10% was painful you know a generous heart who gives the entire proceeds of the sale of their land to the church to be used for anyone who has need there's no ties on that money I gave it away. Use it. Didn't designate it for anything. I just want you to use it. What if we had an attitude of giving such as this, or even 10% of that, or 20% of that, or whatever, and we gave to the church, we gave back to the Lord in such a generous way? It'd be amazing. And that we wouldn't pour it all into facilities, but we poured that back out into people. Right? I mean, that would be amazing. It would be incredible. And this is what God is trying to say. So now we come to the account of Ananias and Sapphira and how they were 180 degrees out of phase with Barnabas. Barnabas is an example of how to be generous correctly. And these folks and their actions couldn't be more wrong if they wanted to be. So let's read this. We're going to read starting in Acts 5, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to look at their attempted deceit and God's reaction to it. Starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, when we read this, it's, you know, we go, wow, okay, that might be one piece of scripture I never want to read again. But scholars see this account of Ananias and Sapphira as a New Testament version, of you will, of of the story of Achan and Joshua. If you remember that story in Joshua chapter 7, God said after the fall of Jericho, that's your next, by the way, homework assignment. First you had Acts chapter 2 to review that. Now you need to go and read Joshua chapter 7. 
Well, actually, you really need to read 6 and 7, to be honest. But God said after the fall of Jericho in, in Joshua 6.18 that Israel was to keep themselves from the devoted things. And if they failed to follow the Lord's commands, in other words, when they went there to Jericho, they were going to find idols and things, and they were to stay away from those, stay away from them. But if they didn't, they would bring trouble on themselves. So they, they thought everybody had followed the command of the Lord, and they went into battle again against a, a country called Ai, or I. And Joshua was upset because they were routed in that. They got to soundly defeated. And they were like, why is the Lord's favor not on us? You sent us to battle, and now we got defeated, and people were killed. But the Lord said someone had taken some of the devoted things and kept them for themselves. And after they interrogated all the clans, they came to Achan, and he admitted that he had taken the devoted things and he had kept them for himself in his tent. And after they found them, he was stoned to death and he was burned with fire. That is an awful story as well. But there are similarities in both accounts. And for the sake of time, the biggest similarity that I want to touch on today is that they both occurred during the early stages of a change. In Achan's story, the nation of Israel had just crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And in, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira came right after Pentecost in the beginning of the church. Part of the reason why I think this happened, and what the, not what I think, but what I've read through commentators and scholars and just praying through this, is that God is showing the people early on that, that he is not to be messed with, that he alone is God, and that he wants his people to understand his holiness. He wants the church to be pure and united. And we can see why, because of what we talked about earlier. He didn't want there to be cracks and fissures of sin and people following their own way and not the Lord's ways. He was trying to warn them, just as he was warning the church through Ananias and Sapphira. And we can see that through the reaction. We talk about, you know, taking things in, when we go to, when we're at work, you know, and, and you're a middling person like I was in the corporate world. You go, you go, man, I, I, I want to just go to the top. I want to go to the top. I want to go to the top of the food chain. I want to talk to the CEO like I would ever talk to the CEO. You didn't even know who I am. But when we, we go to the top of the food chain, we have God. We have the Lord. He is the top of the food chain. There is no one higher than him. And the CEO, the company that I worked for who didn't know me, God knows everything about me. He knows everything about what we say before it rolls off of our tongue, as David said. He is the final judge. And Israel needed to know that when they stepped out as his holy nation, and the church, us too, we needed to know that we are Jesus' bride, and we are held to a very, very high standard because we represent the Lord on high. 
So if we think that we can really get away with lying to the one who knows all things, who knows every thought and every word that rolls off our tongue, as David said in Psalm 139, we're crazy. One might say we're stupid. I'll try not to use that word. But we're definitely sinners. We're, we're lunatics in some ways. It's just crazy to think. But we see that in this, Peter asks Ananias three important questions in verses 3 and 4. The first one is, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And the second one is, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And the third one is, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So let's address each one of these questions in, uh, in detail and see what we find. The first one again is, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, we know we see this as a question, but I'll be honest, this is also a doctrinal statement that we can learn something from. Peter is not asking if Satan filled Ananias' heart, but he is definitely saying that he did. Can Satan fill the heart of a believer? A question that many of us have had. I've heard people ask me that question. In order to address the question, we must look back at Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. And we look at that in John 13, 2. And he says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, of course, to betray Jesus. So we see in this verse that Satan himself didn't enter into Judas physically. But he placed the notion of betraying Jesus in Judas's heart. That's an important thing to remember. Okay? Was Judas a believer? I think we could see that Judas was not a believer. But Satan didn't enter into him. He put the idea to betray Jesus into his heart. And then when we look at Acts 5.3, in Peter's question to Ananias, what he is really saying is that Satan placed in his heart the idea of the scheme that he didn't really enter into his physical body because he can't. Satan cannot possess a believer. And then the question is, of course, is Ananias and Sapphira a believer based on their actions? The Bible doesn't really say one way or the other, but they were a part of the church. And so we can assume, like Judas, you know, we're not sure. But, in the well, in Judas's case, let me just back up. In Judas's case, we can know for sure that he wasn't a believer. In Ananias and Sapphira, it appears maybe they're not, but we don't really know for sure. I would hope they are and they'll be in heaven, but based on their actions, it's hard to know. But anyway, Satan placed in the heart the idea or scheme to sell the land and only give part of the proceeds to the Lord or to the church. So again, the devil can't enter into a person who has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. God won't allow it. But Satan and his minions can't influence our thoughts by working on our weak points to cause us to sin. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are to be watchful, to keep our minds clear and focused on the Lord and things of the Lord because the devil wants to trip us up. He's out there looking for us. He wants to watch us fail. And he wants us to bring shame on ourselves and above all, the Lord. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are called to submit ourselves to God by acknowledging and recognizing him alone as the one who has authority over us. By being close to him and relying on his power and strength, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. It is clear that Ananias and his wife Sapphira were not doing either of these. And it kind of reminded me of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we'll look at that a little bit more in detail. And I, I do want to say this as we get through this to the end, men, I want us to get ready because I'm going to pick on us a bit. But it's a big warning to us and how we take care of our wives. And women, this text also says something to you, so you can't escape it either. Get ready. I'm going to speak to you as well. But the second part of the first question is this. Who did Ananias lie to? Well, he lied to the Holy Spirit. And why is this significant? Because Peter confirms in his next statement that the Holy Spirit himself is God. He is God. Jesus warned us about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which lying to him falls into this category. Luke 12.10 says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. As Peter points out, both Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. Thus they weren't forgiven or maybe not given a chance to repent. And, and they were killed, it appears, almost immediately. Some of us might say that where is the justice of God in their death? Shouldn't they have been given a chance to repent? And receive forgiveness. Romans 9.15, Paul writes, For the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is the ultimate authority. He is the one who decides whom he will have mercy on, not us. Not us. Ananias blatantly lied to the Holy Spirit. They have been warned not to do so. And as a righteous judge, God is within his own perfect will to act as he did and kill Ananias, Ananias in the front of the congregation and later his wife, Sapphira. Paul writes this further in Romans 9 and verses 21 through 23. And I get these are hard words. We sometimes forget that God is a holy God and he is terrifying and he does things that make us shake our head, but he is within his right to do so. Verse 21 says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. That is a hard passage in and of itself. That indicates that God sometimes makes people to be part of his wrath in order and sacrifice one, if you will, for the sake of the many by showing his holiness by taking it out on them for the rest of the people. And we really have nothing to say about that because he's God. We think of Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart to show Egypt, but also to show the nation of Israel who God really is. Who is he? Who is the God? Not Dagon, the God that the Egyptians had been worshiping. You see, we are the clay and God is the potter. He is the creator and we are the creatures. God has the right to do what he wants to do. Sometimes, as Paul points out, the Lord's wrath is used to point us to his glory and power. In this case, Ananias and Sapphira, God is showing through their deaths his righteous judgment against sin. And it was their blatant sin against God, but also the church itself to bring disunity to the church that brought God's judgment. The second question is that while it remained unsold, Peter asked him, while your land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And this, this is really one of the tragedies in the account here in Acts. It's that it was unnecessary. This never had to happen because they were under no obligation at all to sell their land. Compare that to the wonderful and beautiful story of Barnabas at the end of chapter 4 who sold his land also under no compulsion to do so, but out of his generosity and love for the church gave everything to be used as was saw fit. And now Ananias and Sapphira, again, under the same freedom, they could have just kept the land. And they could have sold the land and just been honest and say, look, we're keeping 50% and we're giving 50% to the church. And they would have been fine. Now, we don't know this, but maybe they made a previous agreement to sell this parcel and give the money. And thus breaking a vow, but we don't know that. Somehow Peter was made aware of this by the power of the Spirit. But the sad thing is, not only did they lie to the Spirit and to the church, but there wasn't any pressure on them to do so. They did it out of their own free will. Why? Why would they do that, Peter asks. A perfectly legitimate question that causes us to scratch our head. And the answer to that is this. Ananias just didn't commit the sin of lying, but he was also committing the sin of hypocrisy. And that's the sin that God hates the most. Ananias was trying to build his own image amongst the people and not the Lord's. He was trying to make himself look good. He was trying to glorify himself at the expense of the Lord. His hypocrisy, his hypocrisy was showing himself to be the one 
way while his, in his own secret, to show himself to be one person. And then in his secret self, he was a completely different person. Back a long time ago when Sherry were, and I were attending a church that I was an elder at, um, there was this family, a couple that came and they were very critical of our church a lot as far as our leadership goes. We were always being criticized by them. And one day in church, uh, Sherry and I happened to be sitting in the row behind them. And during the message, they had their Bibles open. Inside their Bibles, they had novels inside that they were reading while the message was going on. Talk about hypocrisy. They held themselves up to be one standard and, and with as much stupidity as anybody could possibly have in church with an elder behind them were showing themselves for their real self. Now, I'm not saying that our pastor was a great preacher, but, you know, if you guys are opening up novels in my messages, we're going to have to have a talk, okay? <laughs> this, is not, this is not what it's supposed to be like. Be who you are. The Lord knows who you really are. We cannot hide ourselves from him by putting on a great public persona and then in our private life, we're a completely different person. This is the scary part. The Lord knows our secret places in our hearts and in our minds. And he is grieved by our hypocrisy and pride. There are places inside of us, and in me too, to be honest, that I would never want to have anybody go to. Little crevices in there that may be from my past that I hold on to, that you hold on to, or maybe things you're currently doing and trying to hide. But God knows. He knows. He goes into those places. He is not banned from there. So when we sin, we're taking him with us. He knows. Do you ever think about when you sin that he is right with you? When you go to click that website, he's going there with you. When you lie to make yourself look big, he's standing right there and he knows the truth. When you do something, he is there. He knows. He knows. And honestly, that should cause us fear. The kind of fear that, that God is talking about. And we get fearful of many things, but sometimes it seems that, like we talked about, the world and the church in general is not fearful of the terror of our holy God. You know, we read time and time again in the Bible when somebody comes in contact with God when they enter into the throne room, what do they do? Do they go up and give him a hug and jump up and down and high-five him? No. That would be great if we could do that. And one day we probably will be able to do that. But God, no. When they came in contact with the holy, they fell down on their face as though dead. We can't even look upon God in our sinful state right now or we would die. God told that to Moses. You can't look upon me or you'll die. We can't look upon God because he's terrifying. 
Do we understand that, that God holds us by, as uh, the great Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he describes God as holding us by the nape of our neck over the pit of hell. And all he has to do is just drop us. And we would deserve that. That's frightening, isn't it? That should terrify us. That he can hold us by the nape of our neck and just let us go into the pit of hell. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't do that, nor would he do that. He sent his son to take his wrath instead. Because God is not only terrifying, but he's also loving and kind. But sometimes we forget that he holds he holds our fate. And we deserve hell. We deserve death. We deserve his wrath. And yet he gave it to his son instead. And that is a beautiful thing. In Ananias and Sapphira, they had forgotten that. God is not our buddy and our pal. When Jesus says that you're his friend, it's different than what you and I would be friends. You know, we could go out and hang out, you know, and share a pizza together and swap stories and, you know, whatever. God, when we come in contact with him, it's different. Friendship with God is to understand who he is and obey him and talk to him and share our deepest fears and thoughts with him and allow him to take control of our lives. That's the kind of friend God is for us. He loves us. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the third question is, why is it then that you have conceived, contrived this deed in your heart? Do you have not lied to man but to God? Now we don't need to spend a lot of time on the third one because we already went through it already, but the lie Ananias told himself was that he was lying to the people, so that shouldn't be that bad, right? I mean, really, the church isn't going to miss it if I keep some of the money, will they? I want them to think that I'm a generous person like Barnabas. So if I just keep some of it, that nobody's going to find out, right? Who's to know? But Peter, much to his surprise, confronts him with the knowledge that he must have received from the Spirit, and he caught him in his lie. And again, he wasn't just lying to the people. He was lying to the Holy Spirit and to his church. And there doesn't seem to be a time for repentance after he's been called out and he is killed immediately. His time for repentance was before. His time of repentance was when he came with the money. He could have, at that point, repented and gave all the money. He could have come clean and told them, this is what I'm going to do, and it would have been okay. <coughs> but instead, he went through with it. As I was studying for this, um, and this thought came running through my mind that imagine a world without repentance. Imagine 
we think of the word repentance and we think of it as being a terrible world word, but, but think about that. Think about if there was no cross, if there was no chance to turn from our sin and get forgiveness, Ananias and Sapphira are the picture of what that world looks like. Repentance is a wonderful thing that God gives us. It is a gift. It is something that you and I need to cherish and to use. It is not a harsh word, you know. You hear the fire and brimstone guys, repent for the, or you're going to go to hell. Well, there's truth in that. You don't have to yell about it, but, but there is truth in that. If we don't repent, we're headed straight towards destruction. But because of God's love, his mercy, and his grace, he's given us repentance. He's given us the ability to turn back to him. Repentance is not just for unbelievers either. Repentance is also for believers. If we continue in sin, if we are in sin now, we need to repent. We need to repent and turn back to God. Quit heading down this path that you know leads to nothing but trouble and turn back to him in his loving arms. If you are not a believer here this morning, today is the day of repentance. This should be a warning to you of what your life looks like if you don't repent. God must punish sin. And so you can either accept his gift through Jesus having already done so, or you can take your chances at the judgment seat and stand before him and explain yourself. I assure you, you will have nothing to say. And you will be judged, and you will be sent to hell, and you will deserve it, just like the rest of us. Without Christ, you'll find judgment, and you'll be found guilty. If you're not sure of where you're at today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to know for sure. Don't wait. Know today. This final section brings Sapphira into the picture. She is confronted by Peter, and, and she doesn't know that Peter knows anything. She doesn't know even the fate of her own husband. And three hours goes by before she is brought before Peter. But as we see in our last point, our fourth point, that Sapphira is guilty of her collusion to deceive the church and to God. We'll read verses 7 through 11. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard of these things. So Sapphira may not have known what happened to her husband, but Peter did. But she was fully aware of the scheme that her husband had put forth. In verse 8, Peter gives her a chance to tell the truth. She gets an opportunity to come straight. 
but she chooses not to. She fears her husband and his judgment more than she fears the judgment of the Lord. And so she continues the lie. And she is also killed on the spot. Now, we don't have to go much into this because we spent so much time on Ananias. But here's what I want to say to us men. So guys, don't fall asleep. This is for you. It's also for me. Remember, I went through this first before you are. Men, we are called to lead our wives towards a holy and righteous relationship with the Lord. We are not to lead our wives to be complicit in our sins. This passage is a perfect example of how not to lead your wife. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We are to lift our wives up to the Lord as holy, righteous, and beautiful, just as he gave her to us. This is a lesson to us regarding what happens when we do not do what God tells us to do. We must, we must lead our wives righteously and lovingly. So let me ask you, do you point your wife to the Lord? Do you come alongside her in her walk with Jesus? Or do you, be, or, or do you make her a pawn in your sinful schemes? Okay, ladies, let me just say this, that even if your husband leads you improperly and asks you to participate in their sins and lie for them, don't do it. Seems pretty simple. Each of us is responsible for our own sins. Ananias was responsible for his, Sapphira was responsible for perpetuating it. We think back again to Adam and Eve, and they were held accountable for their sins, both of them, and so will we. We need to be close to Jesus, and when we sin, we need to go directly to Him and repent. Resist the devil and he will flee. Verse 11 is the first place in the Bible where the word ecclesia is used, which is the word that's usually translated to church. And it means the called out ones, the gathering of God's people. We are the called out ones, and we need to have a healthy fear of our Lord above everyone and everything else. He holds our eternal fate in his hands. So if you're in sin today, I tell you to repent, to turn to the Lord and not keep following that line of destruction. Kill sin, as John Owen said, or it will be killing you. We are Christ's bride, church. One day we'll be presented to him without stain and without spot. And we will be made holy and restored, fully consecrated to him. And we are to live lives now while we're on earth that show a healthy fear and to live in obedience to him and to trust him in his promises and then not to try and scheme our way around him. Lay yourself down to him. Understand what he has done for you and live for him. Learn from Ananias and Sapphira. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, God, for this message is difficult. It was long, but it's also difficult, Lord. I pray, God, that your word this morning would open our hearts and minds and help us to understand that 
You are a holy and righteous and just God. And nothing that you do is out of your perfect will. Lord, I just pray, God, that this morning, that if we are in sin today, that we would repent of our sin and we would turn from it and turn to you. That we would quit leading our lives of destruction and turn to you. And if there are people here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that today for the first time they would surrender their life to you. Father God, I just pray, Lord, that you will help us to learn and just understand that you also love us by giving Christ, your son, to us and the chance of forgiveness. And we just pray all of these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.